All right, good morning, Jacob's Well. Uh, yeah, like I said, my name's Tyler Stowell, uh, part of the discipleship team here and the teaching team. I'm really, I'm really, uh, Jalen and Rachel, I'm really digging the vibe up here. Um, college students, did I say that right? Digging the vibe, is that? Not to, it's kind of like a talk show. I mean, I was, I was liking that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I love Rutgers, loyal to the death, but I do have my St. Peter's Peacocks blue on. Really did not pick them, but really excited to see them make a run. Um, my bracket is far, far long busted uh, a long time ago. Uh, so yeah, passage this morning. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a doozy. In some ways, as Philippians has been, there's some, there's some pretty crazy radical stuff that Paul is saying, and this might be among the, uh, among the more radical from what he says. And he just got done talking about uh, rejoicing. Jalen walked us through some of that last week, which was beautiful, ministered to my soul, this idea of rejoicing in suffering, which really is what Philippians is all about, what the Christian life is all about. I'm getting a lot of feedback up here, which is fine for me, but is that messing with anybody or production team? Do I need to change anything? Good, great. Um, and so Paul's talking about, I'm going to rejoice, I'm going to rejoice, I'm going to rejoice. And then he's about to tell us why, or just further expand on it, and it involves deaths, which doesn't, doesn't really seem to go together. But that's where we pick it up in verse 19. Let's put that, put that up there. Um, in fact, actually, go to that Mark, Mark passage. I'm sorry, Rachel. Because um, here's why Paul is able to rejoice. He's picked up on what Jesus has said. Um, this is not, I wrote down the wrong, the wrong reference there. Let me see where I want to be here. Yeah, Mark, I wrote down the wrong one, Rachel. Can you go Mark 8, 34 to 38? Mark 8, 34 to 38. Paul's picked up on something that Jesus talked about uh, in his teaching about life and death and the, some of the big questions that we have to answer in life. Jesus, in Mark 8, says this, calling the crowd to him, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul has done this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses, my, loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Paul has done this. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Paul has done the opposite of that. He has forfeited the world so that he could gain his soul. What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man, will be ashamed. Paul understands this. And I, I think this teaching here, perhaps Paul had even, certainly had heard of this teaching. Perhaps they even had this in writing. I'd have to look at the dates, but Mark, I believe, was one of the earlier gospels written. Paul, Paul's living out of this. He's living out of this idea here. And I wonder if he's even drawing on this in this passage as he talks about some of these things. He knows that even though he's in prison writing this letter to a church, which was started while he was in prison, he knows that being in the center of God's will is the best place that he can be. And so he knows that his life is hidden with Christ. Colossians 3.3, his life is hidden with Christ. And so he can say the things that he says to start off this passage. Pull up the, the Philippians 1 passage again, where he says in 19... End of 18, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life 
or by death. See, some of the same language he's, he's picking up on. And Paul's putting this in here as he writes to this Philippian church, encouraging them to keep going, encouraging them to keep taking step after step. Paul, in, in many ways, maybe he's just ministering to himself here, reminding himself of these truths. But here's what, what came to my mind when I first read this verse. And I, I shared a little bit about this last week or a couple weeks ago with, with my dad who recently passed. Obviously, we talked some about Pastor Scott's mom. I know those aren't the only losses. It's not about me. It's not about him. I know those aren't the only losses. But I thought about, okay, Lord, but what about when it doesn't seem to work out for my deliverance? What about when it doesn't work out for my definition of deliverance? What then? What about unanswered prayer? And even Paul, we, you know, we could kind of make the case that in some ways Paul was delivered from this. As, as far as I know, if I've got my dates right, he still lived for a couple more years after he wrote this. Um, at least he was under house arrest, but had a, a lot of free, at least under house arrest, but he had a lot of freedom to still do things and minister. He was a, a trusted prisoner, I guess, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, and yet he, he speaks a little later in this passage of wanting to get back to Philippi. As far as I know, that we know, that never happened. So in one sense, he was kind of delivered. He lived a couple more years. In another sense, maybe not. He ultimately did die for his faith. But unanswered prayer, what about that? I thought about that just in my own life. One, one thing that I've dealt with for my entire life, never actually officially diagnosed, but anxiety and worry and grasping for control uh, throughout my whole life. And there's been lots of times where I have begged and pleaded, especially as a younger kid, where, God, would you take this away? Would you take this away? Would you give me peace? Give me this peace that surpasses understanding that your word talks about. And, and God, in some ways, didn't answer that prayer, and in other ways, he did. It just, he answered it differently in different timing. So sometimes it's not about, it's not trying to be too cliche. Sometimes God says yes, no, or wait unanswered prayer is still really hard, though. That was a hard journey for me in a lot of ways. Still something that is a hard journey. And then, as I said about my dad, who passed away just a couple of months ago, I was praying certainly for his healing, certainly that God would intervene and would heal him. But then, as, I, as we begun to see where things were kind of headed, I was praying that our girls would get to say goodbye. My dad was, I mean, he loved me, but he also loved my sister, and he loved his granddaughters. He was a, he was a, he was a girl dad and a girl grandpa, and he loved them. And I was praying that they would get to say goodbye. And God said, no, they didn't get to say goodbye. That's one of the hardest things for me in having to deal with all of that was that my kids didn't get to say goodbye one more time. What do we do when life doesn't work out the way we want, when, when deliverance doesn't happen? Well, 40 minutes in a sermon is not really going to solve that or answer that, that question. Those are hard things that we have to wrestle with through life that we have to deal with and understand even some of the things that Paul is talking about here. Again, some ways this worked out for his deliverance, some ways it didn't. might depend on the definition. In an ultimate sense, because Paul's able to say to live as Christ and die as gain, true, true ultimate deliverance does happen. That's the only place I've been able to put my hope as I still continue to wrestle with the feelings of grief and sorrow and unanswered prayer. Paul's main focus here, though, was honoring Christ. He says that. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That can happen whether he lives or dies. That's his main focus. That's his purpose in life. That's all he is concerned about. And, and even thinking about, you know, Paul's relationship with death, it's kind of interesting, right? Like he used to kill Christians, and then he's going to be killed as a Christian. And through much of his writing, he's talking about death. He, he's, he's referencing death a lot. He's certainly not afraid to be killed as a Christian. 
And it, it reminded me of, um, I had to do a little research on this. It reminded me of a story that I heard that I always thought was just kind of, a, kind of an ancient, uh, maybe early church fable about Lazarus. And right, Lazarus is the one who died and he was, he was sick. If I'm, getting the, I gotta, if I'm getting the story right, he was sick. His sisters sent word to Jesus and they're like, hey, Lazarus is sick, why don't you come? And Jesus is like, okay, nope, I'm gonna stay here for two more days. Lazarus dies, and then they finally get there, and he's been dead, and they're like, Jesus, what in the world? Like, you could have you healed him. You could have saved him. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know, but this is going to work out. This is going to work out for the good. It's not going to end in death. And like, this guy is nuts. Like, he is, he is dead. What do you mean it's not going to end in death? And even, even in that moment, they were thinking future resurrection. And what does Jesus do? Well, first, he deals with grief and sorrow, and he weeps over his friend that died. And then he brings them back to life. There's a, there's a little kid's book called uh, Goodbye to Goodbyes. I think we even read it from up front at one point during COVID. We were kind of doing the kids' stories uh, for those that were, that were with our church during that time. I think it was read from up front. And a, and a dear friend, a coworker, sent that to us recently after I had shared about my dad. And so I read that tearfully the other night, Goodbye to Goodbyes. It's this idea that, that for those of us in Christ, like we have to say goodbye now, but, but there will be a goodbye to goodbyes recently. And so, honestly, as I just uh, re-ran through that, that story there of Lazarus, I was mostly thinking about that book, not uh, how it's laid out in Scripture, which it matches up, but I was thinking about the pictures in that book. So, anyways, I remember hearing this story, though, about, about Lazarus and a, a conversation he was having with a, a Roman governor, kind of an emperor-to-be, who was threatening Lazarus, uh, as many Christians were threatened in the Roman Empire back in the day. And Lazarus was just, he was just laughing because he was being threatened with death. And it was this idea of like, how do, you, how do you threaten a guy that's already been dead and now is back to life? And I just thought that, I didn't know if it was a true story or what, so I did some research. It's actually a play. It's an ancient play that someone wrote called Lazarus Laughed. And apparently, there's like 150 people in the cast. It's only ever been performed just like a handful of times in history because it's such a huge cast. And it's, and it's a satire, and there's actually kind of some weird theology by the time they get to the end of it. Um, it just in my, in my skimming of it and listening to kind of the things, it's like, okay, well, maybe, you know, I don't have to go the whole story. But this idea <laughs> of what's happening is this, this emperor-to-be is threatening Lazarus to stop talking about Jesus. And Lazarus just keeps laughing, and he responds with, death is dead, death is dead, death is dead. That's all he keeps saying. And the principle is just this, how do you, how do you threaten someone who's already been dead, but been brought back to life by the spoken command, audible, verbal command of the resurrection and the life saying, come out, come out of death. Like, how do you threaten somebody? I mean, I, I just, I, I'm so curious if that actually happened at one point in Lazarus's life, because I mean, truly, we talk about being afraid of death. I mean, the guy had already been there and he knew the one that brought him back and he knew the one he would meet again one day the next time that he died, right? Which is a wild thing to say the next time that someone dies. But like, that's the, that's the boldness and the courage that I have to believe Lazarus was able to live with because death was really dead. And it just brings up the question of, do you fear death? You know, our society today in the West, both just because of how society is in the West, as well as our time in history, we don't really come face to face with death a lot. Maybe over the last couple of years, we have globally, maybe perhaps than, than we have in a long time with with COVID, now with wars happening, but it's been a while since we've kind of been face-to-face -face with death in the West. I think back then, thousands of years ago, it's probably much more, maybe that's even why Paul wrote about it. It was just in their face. And yet here's a quote that I, I came across 
that I just, it's worth sharing in a, in a commentary I was looking at this week. Put up that, that first slide there. It's a long one, but it's just worth, it's worth sharing. Stephen Fowl, the author of this commentary, says this. Because of the great advances in medical technologies in America, we appear, keyword there, we appear to be offered a great deal of control over the time, place, and manner of our deaths. This tempts us to treat death as an event that is discontinuous with the rest of our life. Thus, for many, death is simply presented as the last great opportunity to exert an autonomous consumer choice rather than an occasion on which Christ might be magnified in our bodies. One of the challenges facing contemporary Christian, American Christians then is to reflect theologically about death in light of the advances in death-denying or death-delaying technologies. That really hit me this week. And it, it's not saying that medicine is bad. It's not saying that science and all, and advancement, and like, praise God for that. I think Paul would even say, hey, to live is Christ. So if you can live long, great. That's basically his summary at the end of this passage. But there's something to be said here about the grasping of life with which we live life. And that really challenged me this week. And so again, we have to wonder and ask, do, do you fear death? Paul, at this point in his life, seems to not. But the only way that death is not scary, the only way that death is gain, is if the next life is greater than this one. And objectively, that's true because of Christ. Christ is the only one, the only one that makes death gain. But then subjectively, like, do I believe that? And not just do I intellectually believe that, but do I actually live that out in my life? Or does this fear of death show up? Well, often fear of death shows up, at least in my own life. And there's a great book called Running Scared by uh, Ed Welch, who is just a uh, yeah, phenomenal, wise Christian counselor and author. And, uh, and he talks about, in one of the chapters in Running Scared, he talks about a whole bunch of different fears. It was a blessing to my life a number of years ago. And he talks about fears of death and the different pieces of that puzzle. What is it about death itself that is really fearful? And so there's a couple I just wanted to run through. One, he brings up this idea of eternity. And this is always a thing that has freaked me out. And his, his, honestly, his, his help wasn't really that helpful. He's like, yeah, you kind of just have to not think about it. And I was like, well, that's why I'm reading your book, man, because I can't not think about it, right? So, but he just says, you have to understand that a finite mind can't grasp the infinite. That, that any type of, and I'm a, I was a math education major in college, so numbers and all that stuff, like infinity, like that's just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't totally compute. We can't grasp that. A finite man, mind can't grasp the infinite. And so it's this idea, something that's really helped me is just to remember future grace. Like I don't have to deal with eternity right now. When it comes time to deal with eternity, in eternity, somehow like my mind will be able to process that and God will give me the grace that I need. And so often in my own life, anxiety attacks and things like that are, are the body's response to a future threat that I perceive is right here and now. And so I try to put two feet on the ground and say, okay, Jesus, help me be in the present without trying to be too cliche, truly a spirit-enabled a spirit -enabled thing, help me be present. Then there's this idea of, of the manner of death. Right? I'm not, I'm not going to be gruesome or anything, but again, this idea of the manner of death, we fear that. There's a lot of fears are related to that. Rightly so. There's some pretty scary ways to, to die in this life. And again, the idea of grace for the future, that somehow God will give us this. I love what, what Dr. Welch said in his book here about technology, kind of a la that quote I just read. He says, you can't trust technology because technology is one of the problems. You can't trust in pain management because medications don't always cut through the pain. There's probably some amens to that out there. 
So there are no other options. Your God has fenced you in. So your only option is to trust that he will give you grace. And that's a scary place to be. That doesn't fit nicely in my little box about dealing with fear, trusting that someone else is gonna give me what I need. But that's the call. That's the call of faith. That's the call of walking with God. What about hardship for loved ones if I were to die? Again, just super pastorally. Welch, he acknowledges this and he says, if God's gonna give you grace, he'll give them grace. Without trying to be trite, without trying to minimize it, right? That's a deep fear of mine. And then he just says, hey, ask others to pray, right? When someone asks, how can you pray? Pray for my family. Whether, whether death seems to be on the horizon or not, pray for my family. It's like, gosh, that's so simple. Like, why can't I just think of that? Then I could write a book and that'd be great. And then the idea of the fear of the unknown, and this kind of ties with eternity even for me, fear of the unknown. Like, the unknown is scary because we don't know what it will be. It is unknown. And this concept of, at the end of the day, we're going to be absent from the body but present with the Lord, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. And so here, here's Dr. Welch's kind of summary. Put up that other quote, Rachel, please. And I just, yeah, again, I, I just, I love this, and it is, it's super pastoral. He says, I and those I love will die, and there are times when that scares me. Like, even just for a counselor and a psychologist to say that is just like a, a balm for my, my mind and soul. Yet, I can be scared with hope. I'm persuaded that one way I can glorify God is to trust him even in the face of death. Seems like he got that from Paul. So I invite you to identify your own fears of death and stick with them until hope is firmly planted in their place. Talk about these things with others and learn how they are finding grace. Again, just like so simple, but it's like, gosh, why do I make it so hard and not just do that? And so, I mean, yeah, that, that doesn't, this isn't a counseling session, right? And, and things like some of the deep-rooted fears that I know I have, that I believe many of us have because we're human around death, like the last five minutes ain't going to solve that. Right? Sometimes we need to sit down with a counselor. Praise God for that. I would, I would hearty amen to, to those decisions. But I hope this is at least a little bit of, of hope. And yet we're going to keep talking about death because Paul talks about death. And I've experienced, like I mentioned, on the backside of a loved one dying, grief. Grief is really hard. It's that painful emotion that comes when, when there is a loss or an impending loss of someone that means something to us or something that means something to us. And yet grief is not something to be to run away from. Jesus himself was described as a man acquainted with grief. He knew about grief. We see him with grief outside of Lazarus's tomb before he's about to bring the guy back to life. Grief is something that brings us back to reality. Reality is that life doesn't work perfectly. I'm a perfectionist, a one on the Enneagram, if I'm allowed to say that. And I get really just frustrated and anxiety-ridden when things don't work out perfectly because they should, or I should be able to make them do that. And God just gently, gently reminds, nope, I'm the only one that can make it work perfectly. Not you, bro. And so grief helps us come back to that reality, just acknowledging this idea that it's not going to be perfect. Not yet. Not yet. One day it will. And grief is a healthy process to work through. I was just reading some about this this week. In order to effectively grieve, we need to have love and support from other people. We need to have love and support from the Lord by his spirit through his word, but also from him through his people. We need to have those that we can grieve with. We need to have structure and space. Sometimes a, um, the, the time and the space in our schedules to grieve. And I was reading about how we need, grief often needs movement. It needs some sort of physical expression. This was a little... Um, not a mantra, but just kind of a, a, a way to think about grief, that acknowledging grief 
engages our mind. Welcoming grief engages our heart. And expressing grief engages our body. I love that. I thought that was so insightful. So whether it's art or sports or just verbally processing with somebody or whatever it might be, going on a hike, some sort of movement expresses that grief and gives it a place to go to let it out in a healthy way. Because if we try to store that inside, it's going to leak out eventually. And I had, never thought about, I had never thought about this before, but just this week I heard somebody else talking about grief and the idea of the veil in the temple being torn when Jesus died, right? When he, when he died, the veil in the temple, which was a four-foot-thick curtain, was torn in two. And it allowed God's people to be entered into God's presence, but also allowed God's presence to come out to God's people. Now that Christ had atoned for our sins, had paid for our sins on the cross, his blood was shed. That's what used to happen with an animal on the inside of that, that uh, room. Now the bridge, uh, the, the gap had been bridged, and so that curtain didn't need to be there anymore. God and man could finally be brought back together because of what Christ had done through death, no less. And yet in ancient Jewish culture, when there was something worth mourning or grieving, most of the times of death, people, loved ones, would tear their clothes as a sign of the grief and the, and the life-changing reality that, that now something has changed in a big way. Something's been torn apart as an outward expression of the heart. And somebody supposed it this week to me that maybe the veil being torn was God's expression of grief over his son dying, almost God tearing his clothes in a sense. I had never thought about that before, but that's a beautiful thing, beautiful thing about grief. And yet grief is still really, really hard. As I've thought about my dad over the last number of months and even over the last week and even over two nights ago, reading that little kid's book, Goodbye to Goodbyes. Like we've had to say goodbye for right now, and I can't wait. One day, the time between now and when I get to see my earthly dad again will be but a vapor, but it's a really foggy, thick vapor right now. That's really hard. And it's okay to acknowledge that. Paul even writes about the, the sting of death, that there is a sting. Death stings, even though we have, and he writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, which is, which is the, the resurrection chapter, the hope that we have in the resurrection, but he still calls death a sting. He doesn't call it a healing balm, right? He doesn't, he doesn't call it chapstick. I thought we were out of winter here, and the last couple of weeks I've had to go get my chapstick back out because, right, that's soothing, Death is not. It's the opposite. It stings. Paul acknowledges that, and he's not afraid to acknowledge that, even though death is gain at the same time. It's a sting and it's a gain. How in the world is that possible? Well, we have to go back to look at Paul, what his life is about. His life is about Christ. It's all about Christ, and it's ultimately all about serving others. Right? Love God, love people. Paul recognized that in order to really love God, I got to love other people. And so he serves and he loves. And it, it makes me think about something that I talk a lot about with the athletes that, that uh, we get to serve, about the difference between goals and purpose. The goal, when anyone steps onto a, a realm of athletic competition, is to do what? To win. Like if that's not your goal, what are you doing there? Right? Athletic competition. I'm not talking about recreation. For those of us who have been playing ball on Monday nights, some, right? Difference between recreation and competition. But in an athletic competition, the goal is to win. That's it. If you're, if you're not there to win, what are you doing? And yet, I challenge them a lot with, what is your purpose? If your purpose is to win, well, there's all kinds of 
movies and documentaries and ESPN 30 for 30 is about those whose purpose was to win and their life crumbled and fell apart. There's a difference between goals and purpose. The goal is to win. But if my purpose is to honor Christ with my body as I compete, I can accomplish that purpose whether or not I, I meet my goals in winning or losing. I can still accomplish my purpose. Paul here had a purpose to honor Christ and to love others. And that would happen in his body, whether he lived or whether he died. I would say his goal would be to live. I mean, he mentions that in, in the, the rest of this passage here as he wrestles with this a little bit. For I'm, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, he writes to the Philippians. He recognizes that, that he is going to, to live here at this sense, and this isn't some kind of weird crystal ball. There were some commentaries I was reading that were trying to figure out, you know, is he trying to tell the future? Like, I don't think, I don't think that's the point here. But this idea that he recognizes his purpose, and yet his goal, I would say, his goal was to, to plant multi-ethnic churches throughout the Roman Empire. That was his goal, and equip the pastors. That was his goal. That's what he did in his writing as he writes to Timothy, as he writes to Titus, as he writes to all these churches in all of his letters. He's equipping them to build out these multi-ethnic churches. But his purpose was to honor Christ by life or by death. And so he would accomplish his purpose for how, whether or not the time in which he could accomplish his goal ended or not. He saw that even in his death, maybe that was a way to further lift Christ up, right? That as he ultimately faced his own death at the hands of the Roman Empire, whose purpose seemed to just conquer all, right? He, the very thing, death, the very thing that the Roman Empire was so good at, he knew, Paul knew that, well, God can even use death to bring about glory, to bring about life. Where had he seen that before? right, at the cross and the resurrection. And he says this in Acts 20, 24. I, I love this verse where Paul is just talking about his own life, and, he, and we see his goals and his purpose meshing here. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's it. That's what his life was all about. It was all centered on that. So since Paul, one commentary I read this week, since Paul knows that the way of Jesus is the way of service, he's convinced that his own preferences will be put aside so that he can remain and continue with the Philippians for their further progress and joy in the faith. He's giving them the model of a service-driven life. Now, it's kind of odd to say, well, his preference was to die. Like, that's usually never my preference. But he recognizes that his life is all about others because Jesus' life was all about others. And so he's trying to display to them what it means to actually live this out. And yet, it reminds me, it reminds me of a, of a line in a Lecrae song from a long time ago, like 10, 15 years ago. Um, I remember hearing this song by Lecrae, right, hip-hop artist and uh, great cultural thinker and, and lover of Jesus and author. And he's talking about the resurrection in one of his songs. And he's talking, about, he's talking about this verse here, about to live as Christ, to die as gain. And he's talking about elsewhere where Paul writes that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are most to be pitied. Our, our faith is futile, totally pointless if Christ didn't rise from the dead. And so he's, he's talking about that. And then he says, but that implies that our lives are built around Christ being alive, right? 
If Christ didn't resurrect, he says, then we're wasting our lives. But that implies that our lives are built around Jesus being alive. And that, I remember when I first heard that, I was like, wow, is my life actually built around that? Like, if Jesus didn't die, what would change in my life? If somehow there was some discovery, would my life completely fall apart? Or would it be like, oh, well, I guess I'll find something else to do Sunday mornings, right? Like, that's a question we need to look in the mirror at a little bit and consider. And so I would love for us to do that, because this is how the Lord met me in this passage this week. So you're welcome. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I want you to just take a minute and, and put, the, put your name in there for the me, right? Which if you're saying it, you can still put me in there. But for Tyler, to live is blank. What is my life actually about? Right now, here's the tension where, before you do that, I gave you an instruction, and now you have to wait. Before you do that, we have to think about, okay, like, like I would like to say, and I, I would say it is, my, like I'm committed, my life is about Christ. That's how I've chosen to live my life. That's how I'm trusting Jesus to, to work in my heart and change it so that it's bent more and more towards that. And yet functionally, the evidence would show that at times in my life, it's not about that. It's about other things. It's about grasping for control so that I can find security in knowing what's gonna happen in the future. That's one way that I, that I live my life at times. It's about, it's about desperately looking for places in my life to, to rest and be still so that I can avoid failure. That's just a part of my story. Lots of other ways. I could go down the list, but you don't need to hear about all my lists. I want you to think about what is life for you, for your name to live is blank. And then, here's the real fun part, then you get to consider, does that make death gain or loss? Because if living is Christ, then death is gain, because then we get to be with him. But if living is something else, and I've seen too many people in the athletic world where I work, where life is something else, it's, sport, it's the win-loss column, and that makes death a loss, right? If life is built around something in this life, then, then that makes death a loss. So that's what I want you to do, just, take, just for a minute. For your name, death, for your name to live is blank, and then does that make death gain or loss? Just let the Lord speak to you and, and hold the mirror of his spirit in front of you here for a moment. Rachel, can you put up uh, the end of that passage, 25 and 26? As, I, as we close here, here's how Paul, and I'm going to tie this in with what you just did here in a minute. 
convinced of this, Paul ends this passage with, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with, all, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Again, as far as we know, he didn't get to actually come to them again. But I want to I focus on that word progress, right? I, I don't know what the Lord brought to your mind just now of, of where you wrestle with finding life. But I know for me, as I sat with this passage earlier this week, there were some things that it was just like, Lord, I thought we were done with that. Like, I thought I was, I thought I was past that. I thought I was through that. And this idea of progress, you know, Galatians 6, 9 talks about in, in fighting off the flesh and in seeking to live life unto Christ and for others. Paul says, let us not grow weary then in doing good, for we will reap a harvest at the proper time. And it's this idea of the long view. John Mark Comer, pastor out in Portland, uh, who's written a couple of great books, one that I'm in the middle of, Live No Lies. And he talks about his dad, who was a pastor, had this simple, this simple phrase on his desk, take the long view. And, and Pastor Comer was even writing about his own struggles with anxiety and some other things. And he was saying, and when I was in my 20s, just completely a tortured mess, I think was the word that he used. And in my 30s, like, mm, still pretty bad little bit of progress. And in my 40s, uh, maybe I'm kind of getting there. And there's some, there's some progress. It's, it's happening less and less, fewer and farther between. And then in my 60s, like, I can't wait to get there. Shalom. I can't wait for that kind of peace. And he was likening it to this, this exponential graph, which, you know, perked my attention as a math major. So this idea that, like, right now, maybe the struggle just doesn't seem like we're making much progress. But we need to trust God to take the long view that perhaps there is a little bit more time that goes by in between that struggle, in between looking for life in that other thing that you filled in the blank. And as we keep walking day by day, keep making progress, the steps will get a little bit bigger, a little bit larger in between each time. As long as we keep taking the long view, over time our lives will become more about Christ, will become more about others, and will become less about me, will become less about you individually as we continue to walk together. And of course, Jesus is the, the model. Scroll down to Philippians 2 there, the, the centerpiece of, gosh, maybe the centerpiece of the entire New Testament. Certainly the centerpiece of, of I would say, Paul's writing and, and absolutely the centerpiece of this book here. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Paul is building up to in this letter just as the, in a literary sense, but this is what he's building out from in his life and what he's lived because he saw Jesus live it. Jesus was the one who lived his life for others and his own death was gained for others. I tried to mess around with that little exercise I just had you do with Jesus and think, how would he fill that in? And I was like, ah, I, can't, I can't speak for him in that way. That's, that's, too, that's, that's bordering line on some heresy probably. I'm not gonna try to do that. But I know this, that because of Jesus' life and death, it was gained for us so that one day we will have eternal life. 
And he just asks us to trust him in life and death, not in a cosmic repayment kind of way. There's nothing we could do to repay. Nothing we could do. He just simply, simply asks us to trust him. He set the model of sacrifice so that we would follow in that, that we would lay down our lives for others. But he also sacrificed himself so that we could trust him. We really can, as we started today, we really can lose our lives for the sake of the gospel because we really will find our life. And it's hidden with Jesus who went through death so that he could offer us life everlasting in return. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for this hope. Thanks just for the reminders for my own heart and soul this week. As honestly, I wasn't really